The following podcast is a member of the Pokecasters Network. Pokecasters Network, supporting Pokemon content creators, their shows, and the community of Pokemon fans. To find out more, check out pokecastersnetwork.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook. Welcome to the Pokepress Digest Podcast, a Pokemon news magazine show. Here you'll find some of the best content offered by our site. For more, visit us at pokepress.blogspot.com. In this episode, Anthropy Podcast drops in to talk about the music of Pokemon Trading Card Game for Game Boy. Released years before the online version, this oddity mimics some of the structure of the regular games, but the tunes are original. Between the area themes, battle music, and a song for a real-world character, it produced a very interesting discussion. As usual, listen after the outro to find out what we thought of the game itself. Thanks. Hi folks, Steven here. I'm on the phone with Anne from PB Podcast, and we're doing yet another discussion of music from a Pokemon side game. This time around, it's the Pokemon trading card game for Game Boy. Yeah, this is kind of a a weird uh, Inception type thing, I guess. It's a, a video game based on the trading card game, based on the video game. So yes, years before the trading card game online became a thing about a decade or so ago, uh, this was uh, released for the Game Boy Color, and we'll talk a little bit about that. So first off, uh, what we usually do is in our structure, of course, is we talk a little bit about the game itself uh, in terms of like its release and stuff like that, what we know about the composer. And then uh, we go from there. We talk about various tracks. We'll also have a, a little bit about there's a, a Japan-only sequel for this one, which is kind of weird. And we also have some feedback to go over. And then we'll talk about our next episode, and then after all that's done, we'll do a bonus segment about the uh, game mechanics itself. We'll bring up a few mechanics in the course of the game, uh, but uh, we'll do a big discussion at the end for about 10 minutes or so. All right, so trading card game for the Game Boy Color. This was released in late 1998, December, it looks like, for Japan. And then it came out about a year and a half later in April 2000 in the U.S., and then Europe got it at the end of 2000. At the time this game was released in North America, I forget exactly which sets we had out. We definitely had the first three sets, and maybe Base Set 2, and maybe the Team Rocket set was about to come out or had just come out when this game came around. But uh, that's sort of the the circumstances there. And uh, what was sort of your experience with this game back in the day? I actually never played uh, the Game Boy version of this game back in the day. My my first experience was like a couple weeks ago where like I just said in passing at a game shop that I was about to do a podcast on this and a stranger at the game shop mentioned that he had a cartridge. So we, we traded my pinball cartridge for his TCG cartridge and... I, I borrowed it for about a week, and it was another example of Pokemon bringing strangers together. What about the actual trading card game? Did you play that? Do you play that? How how does that fit in? Um, I, I play. I, I did collect the cards a lot. Um, My deck strategy is mostly like, that is pretty artwork, and Magikarp is awesome, so I'm very bad. I'm terrible. But I do enjoy the game. I have a somewhat different history with this game. So I, I got this for Easter of 2000. I know that for a fact. And actually, at the time, I had very little experience with the trading card game. I'd never really played it. I had a few cards from mainly promotional stuff. And a few months later, sometime over that summer, um, I basically scrounged up a bunch of money, uh, got a theme deck and some other stuff, and I actually started playing the real trading card game. So if this had not come out... Uh, it definitely would have at least taken me longer to get into the trading card game, which, huh. you know, I still play to this day. But, um, yeah, so that's that's kind of a, an interesting dynamic, to say the least. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, and have played it a lot since. Of course, some of you may remember that back in, I don't know, 2010 or so, uh, 2009, 2010, I forget exactly when, I did a, a full-on playthrough on this channel of the trading card game for Game Boy, where I played basically all the... Um, all the way through the game and uh, sort of have that up there. Uh, I kind of went the extra mile with that one. I actually scanned in the real-world cards and sort of would show those when they would come up in the game, which was kind of a, a fun thing to do to compare the art between the two. But yeah, as far as this game goes, I'm not sure I would have been nearly 
as inclined to get into the trading card game as I was otherwise. I just kind of... That's cool. Yeah. Okay, so a little bit of background information on the game's production as well. Uh, this was developed by Hudson Soft uh, back when, before they got bought by Konami. Let's see, the composer I have down as Ichiro Shimakura. Let's see, according to my records, we weren't able to find a ton of stuff. Uh, apparently he was born back in 1972. Uh, he would have just turned, I guess, 48 uh, a couple weeks ago, actually. And uh, he does have a long history in, in video games going back at least well into the 90s. I found some stuff like uh, Milan's Doki Doki. Uh, is, this is a, a Japanese-only game uh, that was a sequel to Milan's Secret Castle that came out. You could actually get it on like the original Virtual Console. And I, I guess I should also mention here uh, the original Wii Virtual Console. If you want to pick up Pokemon Trading Card Game, you can definitely pick that up on the 3DS Virtual Console. That's quite available. Uh, let's see, Star Soldier, Vanishing Earth, a uh, bunch of stuff in the Mario Party series, Wii Party U, and right now he's working, I guess, at ND Cube, which is a, a Nintendo-owned development house. The last game they worked on, as you might guess, was Super Mario Party for the Switch, and that was released back in 2018. And, you know, since then, we're not really sure what they're working on. They might well be working on another, you know, Mario Party or other party-type game for the Switch or something else entirely. Kind of hard to say. Uh, maybe we'll find something out later this year. But, uh, Anne, um, I think you tried to, to find some stuff yourself. Uh, you, you couldn't find a ton, uh, but uh, what did you find? Um, yeah, and as you said, not much. You'd think his name and biography would be enough to get at least some Japanese hits, given that... Mario Party is so popular, but yeah, I could only find basically his his resume. But I did find a, a Facebook account that may or may not be real. And if it is real, then he is he lives in Sap Sapporo currently. He's possibly uh, from Ibetsu, Hokkaido, and he might be married and is friends with a lot of musicians. So some of which uh, are big names. Some of them I did not recognize at all, but. Um, that would explain a lot of his connections through the music industry, if indeed that is his real Facebook. I can't prove it. <laughs> well, I did find some information that suggested he was part of a Japanese band, in, at least in the Zeros, called 10PM. Kind of an esoteric name there, not entirely surprising. I didn't get a chance to look up any of their music or, or see how far they got, but apparently he does have some work outside of games as well. In, any thoughts there, Anne? Well, just basing on his work in this game and also knowing that he's worked on several of the Mario Party series and the music in them, like he has a very interestingly diversified style compared to a lot of other Pokemon sounding games music. So him him being in a band and again having all these musical connections like could could explain like how some of his musical influence is different from some of the people we may have talked about on this show before. I also think that the uh, in Japan, the uh, video game music world and the regular music industry have a bit more crossover. They've done like music games and stuff like that going back. Uh, they've been more intertwined over the years and, and things like that. Whereas here in, I think, North America, things are a little bit more separate. Mm. It, it is far less common to see a big name band doing something for a, a video game than it it seems to be over there. Yeah. Okay, well, let's sort of talk just a little bit about uh, the structure of the game. Um, it is heavily patterned very clearly on the original red, blue, green, yellow games. Uh, there's not much of an overworld, but we, there is an overworld theme we'll talk about later. Uh, but basically your goal is to get master medals, which are basically gym badges, and then you go through what is basically the Elite Four, and there is a champion, and that's kind of the structure of the game there. Uh, you sort of progress by getting more cards by beating opponents, and you sort of try to build up your deck and, and stuff like that. So that's kind of the overall structure of the game. As far as the music, I think this time around what we're going to do is we're going to talk about sort of the overall style uh, as we go through these, because I think there are some definite patterns that emerge as time goes on. But 
The first one I wanted to talk about is the opening slash title screen theme. Now, the, the opening sequence is, is kind of neat. What they do is they have uh, little spheres representing the various types in the trading card game that move uh, around. And as they do that, you sort of see uh, digitized 8-bit versions of booster packs. And uh, the, 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 these spheres, there's a little bit of a sweeping or, or bubbly cut type sound almost. I, I can't quite describe it. And then after you go through seeing the boosters afterwards, it uh, goes to the title screen itself, which has a it has a very somewhat triumphant feel, I would say, actually. And did you have kind of any thoughts on this one? Yeah, I really like this track. I think the title screen is also called Island in some places, and it kind of has that that feel. And I guess they're taking inspiration from the fact that the the world you're playing in is one small island. But it, it does have a very laid-back, groovy sort of vibe that I find really charming. Yeah, it's kind of like a, an interesting uh, march, though, I, I would say to myself. Um, the instrumentation in this game, it's all obviously based on the Game Boy hardware, but it still seems like they're trying to do like maybe some, some horn-type stuff, like... It's not quite march as marching band as, say, the uh, stuff from Pokemon Stadium that we just talked about last time, but it, it definitely has uh, that kind of feel. And does that make sense? Yeah, and I would say for all the tracks, it is impressive how they're able to create these very different feels despite the limitations of the, I, I guess, the musical software they're working with and the speakers on the Game Boy that like we're able to get these very distinctive musical feels um and it's not just all kind of a, a monotone fast-paced chiptune that sometimes video game music can fall into I, I was very impressed by all these tracks um just the diversity despite not having a lot of diverse musical software and equipment to work with excuse me yeah, it is kind of impressive that despite the limited hardware, you can still kind of emulate certain types of sound depending on what you're going for there. Mm -hmm. Now, you had mentioned that this game takes place on island. Um, there is an overworld map, although there's not a, a ton to it, but it does have its own theme more or less. Uh, and do you want to talk about the uh, overworld theme a bit? Yeah, um, I kind of have mixed feelings about it because on the one hand, it has, again, a very interesting groove to it that I really appreciate. But there's something about its syncopated staccato notes that happen like in conjunction with the, the limitations of the chiptune and the speaker that after a point it gets really annoying. It just sounds like noise. Whereas I can see that if that were played out on a piano or something like, oh, that would be a really cool... A, a really cool rhythm and a really cool melody and notes, but because it's just feels like it's condensed in these particular sounds that are working for for this game, it just sounds like static and noise. So I'm I'm interested to see what you think about it, just because I I'm of two minds. I really like it and appreciate it, but I don't love listening to it. <laughs> well. I found that it had sort of a – at the start of it, there's a bass line, and I think that's structurally kind of similar that a lot of these songs in this game are going to have sort of a, a bass intro before the melody comes in rather than starting with the melody uh, mm -hmm. very quickly. But this one has what I would like to call sort of a jogging bass line that I, I think kind of encourages you to go to various places on the island and not linger too long. Uh, maybe I'm wrong about that. Fair. <laughs> and, then, and then there's the melody that comes over that is is not super fast or anything. This isn't a, a super fast song to begin with. I kind of get what you're talking about with the... There is a bit of a, a noise factor to it. Uh, some of the, the higher-pitched portions, I suppose you could kind of draw that conclusion. I'll admit it's not my favorite, but it is uh, definitely an important one in there. Uh, did you have anything else to add, Anne? Um, no, just that you bring up a good point that, yeah, it probably actually is not a track you were meant to just sit and listen to like I did for this podcast. So maybe it is a moot point. <laughs> I suppose. Well, uh, the way the, the battle themes in this uh, one are structured is that there's each, each sort of type of battle uh, has its own theme for it. There's 
There's about five, which, you know, to be fair, is actually one more than the original main series games. I think they only have four, as we kind of discussed in our Pokemon Stadium discussion, that uh, they didn't have as much to work from as you do in the newer games, where there's a an evil team battle theme and, uh, you know, different themes for the gym leaders versus the Elite Four. This one has about five. And the one you're going to be hearing the most is, I guess you can call it the regular or normal duel theme or battle theme. And basically this is the one where you're fighting against uh, a character that's not one of the club masters or anything. There's just someone in one of the clubs that you have to, to sort of battle and defeat to get to the, the, the club master. As you kind of expect, this is a very casual, you know, low stakes. And uh, just like, you know, the, the, the overworld theme, there's a, there's a bass line that comes that starts it off, and then the melody comes in. Uh, very, very low stakes, obviously, at this point, and the music definitely reflects that. And you're going to be hearing this a lot, and I think, you know, it, I forget the loop is maybe about one and a half to two minutes, but it doesn't, uh, doesn't grate on you, which is very important, because some of these games in, in, or some of these matches, they can be very short, or they can, you know, go on for over ten minutes, depending on how things shape up. And uh, what were your kind of thoughts on this one? Well, with the trainer battle, there's um, like about a minute or so in, there's this little riff kind of, I guess, I guess it would be the final bridge in a traditional song. But like, it's just this like beautiful little in the melody with lots of high notes, grace notes all over the place. And I just live for that riff every single time, like every time the loop gets to that part. Um, the rest of the song, like I, I like it. it it's. It's a fun track, but I just remember every single time, like, waiting for that moment where it does its cute little riff. Um, and I, I feel like this track had a a lot of really interesting little overlays in the melody and features, but that one in particular really stuck out. Yeah, yeah. There are some nice little flourishes and touches in these songs that uh, make them a little more memorable than they would be otherwise, I'm sure. Um, I do overall enjoy the music in this game a fair bit. It's a little bit different than what you get in the main series Pokemon games without being too different, I think. But we'll, we'll sort of mm. give our overall impressions a bit later. So, as you might expect, uh, the next theme we're going to talk about, which is the Clubmaster battle, is uh, considerably more intense, really. Again, we have that structure where there's a, a, a bass line at the start before the, the piece really gets started. Uh, but in this case, the the bass line is, is much more, I don't know if intense is the right word, but it definitely has... Well, it goes on for longer, definitely. Definitely has more force behind it to sort of signify that this, this is a more important one. I mean, there's, there's no real downside to losing for most of the game. Uh, you miss out on a few opportunities here and there. There's a few places where you have to start a certain sequence over if you lose a, a card game, but you never lose cards from it. Uh, there's no real money in this game. But the the music here definitely gives you more of that. It, it's sort of almost like the um, setting things up for. I, I drew some comparisons in this game to Punch Out uh, and other like you know boxing type games like that that have music that sort of sets things up. I, this has maybe a little bit of a slower pace than like uh, the the main fight music in Punch Out and some other games like that. Uh, but it definitely sets this up as, as more of a more intense and uh, higher level of concentration required. And uh, did you get those kind of vibes from it? Yeah. And I kind of forgot to say it with the trainer battle music. It's like that song, much as I love it, doesn't speak to me as fight music. It, it's got just of a, a very chill, friendly vibe to it, which it maybe is what they're going for with a, a friendly match but this is like the track that's like oh yes this is a competition this is important when it comes in and it's all about that bass and then much more of a fanfare type of melody when that when the other instruments come in there's there's definitely a marked difference between the normal duel and the club master yeah, yeah, definitely agree there. I wanted to talk about a few specific aspects. First of all, the melody, there's a, a bit of a soaring quality to it. it. It does go up and down a lot. And in fact, uh, there's a bit of a, a parallelism there in that um, there's a, a set of rising notes 
and then towards the end of the the main loop, there's a, a bit of a you know uh, not not a crescendo or decrescendo because that's that's uh, loudness, I think. Um, mm, yeah, volume. Uh, but towards the end, then there's a set of descending notes. That's the word I'm looking for, and, and it forms a nice parallel. Uh, between there, sort of an in, in-out uh, structure there, right? you know, a, a bit of a breathy structure as the, as the game goes on. Did you notice those, Anne? Um, not until you just pointed it out, no, but I, there is something about this track that just feels very, there's some very deliberate choices and for what it's trying to accomplish in the game. So I, I definitely think that little things like that, the the ch- choice to like, you know, rising notes here, um, decreasing notes here, open with the bass, then then bring in this part. Like, I do feel like all of those were very conscious choices that this wasn't just like, oh, here's a cool track. Let's put it in here that th- they made a lot of decisions on what this track would be serving. It, it feels like it fits very well for what it's meant to do. Yeah, definitely agree with that. Hello there, my name is Matthew Collins, and I am the president of the Pokecasters Network, a Pokemon podcast network. You are hearing this message because this podcast, one of your favorite shows, is either a member of our network or participating in our charity events coming up this May and June. At the Pokecasters Network, one of our goals is to always do charitable work and give back to our communities. Last year, we held several charity events, and we are now announcing our Summer 2020 Charity Series. With three events scheduled in May and more coming down the track in June, we will have plenty of opportunities for you to interact with your favorite content creators. We are once again sponsoring Children's Miracle Network Hospitals. On May 23rd, we have two events, a day of streaming with various streamers, helping us raise money throughout the day. Following our day of streaming is a special tabletop one-shot event with guest players from various Pokemon tabletop podcasts. On May 30th, we will host a special trivia event where players from your favorite Pokemon podcast compete in what will be one of the most entertaining games of trivia you've ever seen. We will also be planning special Pictionary Night, and we are in the works on planning a BGC tournament. During all of our events, we will be giving back to you, the fans and supporters. We have two sponsors, Julie Fu and D2 Designs and Decals. Both have donated various Pokemon-themed items that they have crafted, including custom decals, dice bags, embroidered patches, and face masks. We also have a variety of other items our network has gathered, including pins, keychains, plush, bags, and more. There will be various methods for you to win prizes, which you can find on our website and Extra Life page. We want to thank you for your support. So please, come support the children. Come have a laugh and relax. During such troubling times, we know many of you may be feeling stressed, overwhelmed, and exhausted. This is a chance for you to come take some time, because haven't you earned it? You have, most certainly. We hope to see you all there, and we hope that you will help us spread the word by sharing information on social media and telling your friends. To find out more information, please go to PokeCastersNetwork.com, or find us on Twitter and Facebook. From there, you can find out all the details on our events, how you can help, who is involved, and how you can win some amazing prizes. Thank you so much, and remember, we will get through this together. Now, there are two battle things we won't be talking about in this one. There's uh, one for the uh, Grand Masters. After you get all the, the club medals, you get to challenge them, and also a, a rival battle theme against uh, Ronald, uh, your rival in this game. You don't get to name him. He is called Ronald. <laughs> Let's see. But uh, we did want to talk about a specific character. There are actually a couple of real-life people who show up in this game. One of them is uh, Ishihara, oh, who gosh, is yeah. the head of uh, the Pokemon Company. To this day, you would have seen him a couple weeks ago on the uh, the Pokemon Direct. He was he was there for a little bit. But uh, the other real person, I'll give Anne some time to talk about this guy, but it is Imakuni, and it does end with a question mark. Um, you may have heard him some other places. And who exactly is Imakuni before we talk about his theme? Okay, so um, his full name is Tomoaki Imakuni, um, but he usually is goes by Imakuni with a question mark character, just because just I guess he's not sure who he is. I don't know. He's, uh, he's a very eccentric Japanese musician. I don't know how to explain him, but if you Google photos, like you'll generally find him in an outlandish costume, doing crazy poses, generally loving life. And he was really involved in the promotion of a lot of Pokemon things, especially uh, the trading card game. So he ended up, it ended up being kind of a special feature in this game as a character you could meet. And I believe when you meet him, he like it starts dancing and singing and things. So again, just continuing to love life. 
Um, he also, there's a note that he uh, took a part in designing Pokemon Ranger and the sequels to that. So um, they say he's still involved in Pokemon to this day. Um, draws art for a lot of the cards as well. He's also part of the the band uh, Suzuki-san, which is the rap group formed by himself and uh, famous Enka singer Kobayashi Sachiko and uh, the American rapper uh, Raymond Raymond Johnson, I believe. Yeah, uh, who uh, had a part in the first Pokemon movie. They all formed a rap group to sing songs like um, like Can You Name All the Pokemon and and such songs in Japan. So a very interesting uh, career with Pokemon he has, but he, he generally seems to have all the fun jobs. Yeah, Imakuni even has his own card in this game. And uh, actually, I think they reprinted that within the last couple years or so. I forget exactly. It comes back every now and again. It's not a very useful card because it confuses your active Pokemon, but <laughs> that, that's kind of how far they went. And, and Suzuki's on themselves, they'll, they'll pop up every now and again. They were most involved in the first... Up through, like, the Orange Islands is where they did most of their stuff as far as the TV show. But they show up every now and again. And obviously with the first movie remake, they've uh, they've made some uh, recent appearances as well. But uh, as far as the theme, uh, so the way Imakuni works in the game is that every time you start up the game from, from a restart, he will randomly appear in the left side area of a club. So a club usually has an entrance. They have the actual club area. And they have sort of a rest area. I'm not sure how to call it off to the left of the main entrance. And there's like four different clubs. He'll appear at one of those randomly. And then when you walk in the room, you hear his theme and then you can actually battle him. But uh, and then his theme also plays during the the, the match itself. Uh, He has a very quirky deck with some kind of unusual stuff in it. Uh, But as far as the theme, uh, I kind of wanted to just talk about it because it it reminds me sort of like a, it's sort of a Japanese-ish version of, uh, the closest comparison I think it was like Baby Elephant Walk. I forget exactly how that goes, but it has sort of a a similar sort of fumbly quality or uh, something like that with, uh, it's very discordant intentionally and and things like that. Uh, Anne, what were your thoughts on this particular track? Well... I, I don't think it would be something I'd want to listen to outside of this game, but for the game and like my impression of uh like he's an agent of chaos. Like that's the impression I get when I watch him um in web videos and things. Uh his card confuses your own Pokemon, it seems like he he just delights in chaos. So I kind of love that this track has all the things you wouldn't expect, even things that don't seem to work well musically, th- things that chords that don't match, but it's still fun. There's something about that that's poetically beautiful to this game. Like I said, I don't think I'd enjoy it outside of this specific context. But as um, as a, as a character and an entity that's made to entertain you in this world of Pokemon, I think it works really well. Yeah, very reflective of the character. I absolutely have to give <laughs> the song that. And uh, I do believe this song was, it's not anything pre-existing. It was something written for us, but I think uh, Ichiro did a good job of capturing uh, at least what I know so far of the character. I've also listened to some of the Suzuki-san stuff uh, that has uh, Imakuni, Kobayashi, and Raymond in it. And I, I think as far as like chiptune video game stuff, I think this does a pretty good job there. Mm-hmm. would be kind of interesting to have more cameos from real people. This, this trading card game one and its uh, Japan-only sequel seem to be the only real ones that, that have anything like that, which is kind of disappointing. I mean, well, it, it'd be fun if they could get some celebrities uh, to have, like, cameo roles in games. For some reason, I uh, associate Cosmog with, like, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and then I wonder, like, what would what if Weird Al was a character. So it'd be fun to do yeah. kind of stuff like that. They've done some things kind of like that with, like, Mario Maker, where they've brought in, at least for the original uh, guest designers, mm-hmm. uh, mostly from Japan and stuff like that. But um, it is it's kind of interesting having things intersect. I guess since this is kind of a, a meta Pokemon game, I guess that's kind of appropriate here, I suppose. Yeah. Well, definitely for the main series Pokemon games, a lot of the trainers and things that you'll meet, um, I don't know if the English staff does this as well, but the Japanese staff, a lot of those trainers you meet are named after the people in their staff. And you'll definitely notice 
like there'll often be little inside jokes when it's like someone higher up in the company like a game designer or something. Um, and usually they're all just going by their first names. Um, but I do remember the moment I found the Rika. I don't remember what class of trainer she was, but she had a Pikachu and it was the happiest day of my life. Yeah, in Let's um, Go... Who is obviously Rika Matsumoto. Yeah, in Let's Go Pikachu and Eevee, there are actually a number of the... I forget if they're called master trainers or something like that. Oh, Yeah. But they have a specific Pokemon that you go one-on-one with when you bring your own uh, of that Pokemon. They have some some cute names for some of them. Nice. All right. Well, one thing we haven't really talked about yet is that when you go into the actual club portion, so this is the top portion where the the card battlers usually are, Those uh, they don't each have a theme. There are eight clubs in this game, but there are like two or three different themes that are used in the game. And Anne, you picked out one of them. It's used for what? The Psychic, Water, and Rock Clubs. Yes. Uh, you want to briefly describe what the song is? So this is a very slow-ish comparatively to the other tracks in this game. Maybe one of the slower ones. But it, it's got a very interesting use of space. It doesn't feel rushed. It almost feels like meditation music. There's just It just feels very soft um as far as as you know a a club battle sort of situation music would go just a do 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 and and i really like how it's not afraid to extend pauses and extend notes in a medium that is kind of not meant for that as we were saying earlier like chiptune and game boy music has some limitations it's not really made to hold out a sustained note because it you can't really appreciate the vibration so i appreciate that this was willing to kind of push the expectations that i had of um video game and and early early game boy music um and kind of make something that sounds like it could almost be in a spa (laughs) yeah it's definitely one of the most laid back tunes uh, you'll find in the game there is at least one other i think there are actually two other uh themes there's one that's used for like the fighting uh and the uh fire and maybe one other one and then there's one that's used i think for the uh lightning and uh grass gems or clubs i should say and this one is i i think pretty much the slowest of those and Sort of like that other battle theme, it does have that rising and falling effect, but uh, very right next to each other, and then there's a sort of a, a small tune that goes back and forth. It is, to be honest, probably kind of an, an outlier in terms of music here. Um, do you think, I, I suppose it definitely fits the Water Club, um, and, and probably the Psychic Club to an extent, uh, maybe the Rock Club it isn't quite as, as fitting for, but... Well, the rock theme, I, I sometimes, like, we have definitely very different associations with rock, I think, here in the West. Like, I I didn't get it at first, and then I thought of, like, rocks as sort of like a Japanese Zen garden kind of thing, and a, like a rock garden. So uh, if that was the vibe they were going for, then that, that could fit, potentially. That that might be what they were going for. But that that is a good question to ask the developers. <laughs> You know, come to think of it, you're probably right there. I think that's a, probably a pretty fair comparison now that I think about it. Um, but yeah, having been to Japan myself, I, I think uh, I think you're on the right track there with the the rock. So it might seem a little out of place here in the West, but if you go through that that type of thing there, yeah, it it makes a bit more sense. Okay, we have one more specific track we want to talk about, and then we'll go through uh, a few other things. We've actually got a, a fair bit left to talk about. Uh, but first of all, there is a credit theme in this game. So uh, most games, of course, have a, if they have a defined endpoint, have a credit to some sort. I think Pinball is the only one we've talked about that does not have a, a credit theme. This one, unlike, say, Snap and Stadium, only has one ending credit theme. But uh, after you beat the, the main portion of the game, you get to, to go through with this. It is fairly triumphant, but it's more of a... It's not as as triumphant as some other ones. It's not a party theme. It's uh, maybe a bit more energetic than like the stadium ending credits themes, which had more of a jazz vibe. Um, but this one is, I guess, you could call it sort of a victory lap type of thing. Um, 
and maybe a little bit of Punch-Out! influence, although I think the actual, well, the actual Punch-Out! in credits theme in the original game is, is the title screen theme once again. And does, does some of those comparisons, do they make any sense to you? Yeah, they do. Like, I, I like the, the allusion to it as a, a victory lap, because, yeah, it's just, it's very triumphant. Very, makes you feel good about uh, getting to that point in the game. <laughs> Yeah, and then the actual visuals that go along with it are, you know, it shows you each area in the game, which, you know, is obviously easier to do in a cartridge-based game. If this were on, I don't know, if this were a, uh, like a CD-based game of some sort, they would have had to do like pre-rendered video of each of the places. Um, so it's considerably easier to do here, but uh, it shows you all the places you've been and how far you've come, which is always a, a kind of a fun feature. And I think the music supports that as well, sort of looking back. Uh, it's it's a little bit, it's not completely, uh, you know, divorced from the sort of the type of music they typically use for like the ending themes in the various uh, main series video games. But uh, I, I think you're right about why and how that one works. Uh, any other thoughts on the end credits theme? It's also one of the few ones, I suppose, that has a, a definite ending that isn't just a jingle <laughs> because it does have a, a defined length. Right. Uh, but, Anne, uh, any any other thoughts on the end credits theme? Um, not especially. It's just it's just very pleasant, very satisfying, I guess, is the, is the word satisfying after playing the game. Okay. Well, we do have more things to talk about. Now, I had alluded to this earlier or mentioned it. But there is a Japan-only sequel mm -hmm. that came out, um, let's see, it looks like in Japan it came out in March of 2001, so about a year after this came to the stage. Remember, the original Japanese version came out in 1998. Um, let's see, it's often referred to as just uh, Pokemon Card GB2, and uh, it's sort of its main feature is that it adds uh, sort of two sets. It adds the Team Rocket set. And it adds uh, something called the vending cards, and so there are there are a fair number more cards. Uh, but sort of the the plot wise, uh, not that this, this first game or the second game has a huge plot, um, but one of the things that that comes in is there's this Team Great Rocket, which I guess is sort of it, it's not Team Rocket itself; it's more of a fan club. So it's somewhere between I guess Team Rocket and Team Yell from the, the Sword and Shield games, and that it's sort of a fan club. But they have their own... They make more trouble than Team Yell. They have a blimp, and they steal people's Pokemon cards or whatever and go off to their own side island. Um, and then you have to sort of... You know, you have to defeat them and, and go through. And there's there's other bonus features. It's, a, a, I believe, a Game Boy Color exclusive. And uh, it makes... I looked through some footage... And it uh, like makes better use of of color graphics and stuff like that. And there's some the the player avatars have more frames. And actually, it adds the nice little feature that you can you know you can choose to play as Mint, uh, a girl character that uh, they introduced there. I guess this is around the same time as Crystal. Although I think in the main series games they wanted to have a female playable character from the very start and just really weren't able to make that happen. But notably for this discussion, it does it reuses a lot of music from the original game, um, but it does have new music as well. It looks like it has pretty much the same sound staff. Um, maybe like one new person. They have more detailed credits, it seems, maybe. But uh, the new music, perhaps to fit in with the Team Rocket aesthetic, I mean, they're both Game Boy games, so they have the same instruments to work with. But this one, I think, is more going for a truly electronic sound rather than trying to mimic a uh, any any sort of real-world instrumentation and composition style. It uses, I guess, more technical tricks with some of the instruments to make them sound more technically advanced or whatever. It's still a Game Boy game, like I said. And I, I linked you to some of this. Uh, did you have yeah. any thoughts on the music for this this sequel? Well, I kind of had not exactly the opposite impression. It, it could be just because I'm listening to it on YouTube and not an actual Game Boy. My first thought was like, oh my gosh, I can hear real instruments just because it just had that higher fidelity sound. Like, it, it would be interesting to compare it, I guess, with um, what it would have sounded like on the original cartridge, I guess, because it might just be the medium I listened to it through. Um the idea that it's going for a, a strictly more electronic sound, though, like it definitely had a different vibe to its its rhythms and its melodies um, than 
uh, the original TCG uh, cartridge did. So, yeah, I, I feel like I'm having a different different um, impression of it the more you talk. So, <laughs> Yeah, structurally, I would kind of call that uh, the sequel. And by the way, there is like a complete English patch that was released a few years ago. Uh, if you want to play this through s- certain means. But um, structurally, it almost seems like it's the the Sonic and Knuckles if the original TCGGB was the uh, Sonic 3, because it almost seems like they would want to sort of link these games together somehow, uh, which is, is kind of odd. It does have, uh, at some point, you get to go back to like all the clubs from the original game and, and rematch some of the folks with slightly altered decks with some of the new cards and stuff like that. As for why, I just want to briefly go over why I think this game never came to the States is, first of all, this was released in Japan in 2001. That's only a short time before the Game Boy Advance came out uh, in Japan. It would come out uh, maybe even right around this time, maybe a a month or so after. I forget exactly when. And in the U.S., it came out, uh, the Game Boy Advance came out in June or, or July of that year. And... I think Nintendo themselves kind of stopped making Game Boy Color games very quickly and uh, once the Game Boy Advance came out. And, and third parties really sort of slowed down very quickly as well to get onto the, the new bandwagon, I suppose. Um, I think there might have been some other issues. Like, this game isn't on, like, even the Japanese 3DS Virtual Console. I took a look through there uh, last night while I was just doing a quick check, and it's not on there. And I, I suspect, I think some of the vending cards had... Uh, user submitted or, or fan submitted art on there, and maybe you know they were able to clear that at the time, but they weren't able to like like it wasn't worth the effort. To, and the vending set never came to the states either, as far as I know, other than a few cards here or there that I think were brought into the gym sets. Um, so I think we're we're missing out on some stuff there. So, and and to be honest, by two thousand one, I mean even the U.S. was well into generation two of the trading card game. It's kind of a surprise, and I have to assume Japan was at least a couple sets ahead of that uh, at the time. So it seems like a very late game in a number of ways. So it's almost kind of surprising it came out at all. Yeah, for the Japan side, I can kind of see it just because. At that time, like the marketing push and like the way Pokemon was kind of exploding was so strong. Like I can see them wanting to release this game. And also um, it is uh, unlike uh, the original TCG uh, Game Boy game. This one was developed only or well, it was published only by the Pokemon company. So there might have been some some branding issues going on with that, too. Um but yeah, it does say that um, there were a lot of press conferences saying that a, a North American release was likely, but it never happened. So it's a very interesting thing to speculate why certain things may or may not have happened. But I can kind of see why it may have released in Japan. Like, I bet it was popular enough to have made its money back. Yeah, I don't think they would have lost a ton of money on the uh, if they had brought out <laughs> in English, but it just would have been so late. And I may, perhaps it's a bit telling also that they they never did like a, a Game Boy Advance trading card game. They did eventually make yeah. an online game, which is really just mm-hmm. sort of like in the Western uh, TCG market. But uh, this is sort of the last thing they did like this for quite a long time. So, uh, I mean, there's other factors like in 2002, the or no, it was 2003, like the, the rights to the trading card game reverted back. Uh, they didn't renew their license with Wizards of the Coast, so maybe that threw a wrench in some stuff. But uh, I can think of a variety of reasons, A, why this never came out in the West, and B, why it's not even on the uh, virtual console on the Japanese 3DS, which does have some exclusive games. Mm. I did want to mention, uh, you can always comment on these uh, or previous episodes or anything like that, and we will try and bring those in to a future discussion. But we did get a comment within the last week or so on our Pokemon Snap discussion that we did, I think, back in, it was either September or October, somewhere in there. But uh, in any case, we got a comment from Sage Gaming Lore. So the comment we got was... Okay, I'll admit it's a little self-serving. Wow, this is awesome. Listen to this while I am at work. Just recently played through Pokemon Snap as well. Really great stuff. Um, So we always love uh, getting those comments. And yeah, you can totally, you know, listen to these anytime. I I actually kind of uh, inquired with him how he stumbled across it uh, since I I don't get a ton of uh, feedback that we're getting stuff from search. And he said that basically he made, uh, he's a video maker himself 
and he made a snap video recently and was looking through the recents and found our stuff right there. So um, good on him, and, and thanks for the feedback. Hmm. Okay, it doesn't look like we have any specific comments about that, but That's cool, uh, about though. the music from this game. But like I said, uh, anytime you want to comment on a previous video, go ahead and find that or drop us uh, drop me an email at pokepress.gmail.com. We always like to include those because we love getting feedback uh, either live or after the fact. All right, so I, I'm sure some of you have been waiting and wondering, gee, what's what's your next episode going to be? Is it going to be another side game? Or uh, if you've been following the news and you know when this uh, this was recorded uh, back in early February, you might have a guess as to what our next episode is since we record these about one a month. But in any case, our next episode is going to be... Yes, we're going to be talking about the music of Mewtwo Strikes Back Evolution. So, of course, this is that CGI remake of Pokemon the first movie that uh, came out in Japan last summer and is going to be coming as a Netflix exclusive at the end of February on Pokemon Day, February 27th. And uh, we'll be talking about pretty much all the music in in this remake, uh, comparing it, of course, to the original version and, and things like that. Uh, our main discussion, I suppose, is going to be uh, Together with the Wind, which is the uh, Japanese ending theme, kind of like the original one, versus question mark? <laughs> uh, at the time we're recording this, I have um, a bit of insight that this is probably going to be something written by Ed Goldfarb, uh, but we don't know what the primary ending theme is going to be, or even, you know... What they're if they're going to be using some of the the like something based on the original score of the original English dub, or if they're going to have Brother My Brother or Weird Miracle in any capacity, if they're doing anything with that, we're pretty sure they're going to use some variant of the original Pokemon theme, probably based on the Billy Crawford version from the original version of this movie. But we'll be be talking about this now. If you want to know what we thought of the original movie, it's not on the podcast feed. But it is uh, on my SoundCloud, and also if you dig through the YouTube channel, we sort of talk about what's going on with all of that, or we talk about our opinions, and that one is Together with the Wind versus We're a Miracle. Not Don't See You Love Me, as you might expect. Uh, not that that's a terrible song or anything, but uh, We're a Miracle is the first song in the end credits. Um, but our, our next planned discussion is Mewtwo Strikes Back Evolution sometime in March, presumably. And any thoughts uh, ahead of that discussion? Um, just that I'm very excited for, like, I have no idea what to expect from the movie, but as far as our music discussions, like, I am very excited to talk about Together with the Wind again and whatever updates they make to it. Uh, Kobayashi Sachiko is, like, the woman I want to be. She's amazing. I look forward to hearing her perform this on all the Japanese television music programs. I look forward to figuring out what the English song is going to be. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm just very excited. Yeah, very, very much anticipating that. But uh, in any case, until then, Anne, thank you very much for being on. Thank you for having me. This has been Stephen Reich. All right, folks, thanks. Thanks for listening to the PokePress Digest podcast. We'd appreciate if you rate or review us on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to find more of our great content, visit our website at pokepress.blogspot.com. If you'd like to contact us, send an email to pokepress at gmail.com or follow at pokepress on Twitter. Okay, well, as usual, we did pepper in a few details about the game uh, going forward. Uh, But let's talk a little bit about some of the other non-musical aspects right about now. So structurally, we talked about how there are a lot of similarities to the main Pokemon games, what with the eight clubs matching the eight gyms, uh, the Grandmasters being very similar to the Elite Four, you, you battle against uh, your rival at the end, spoiler, and, and stuff like that. But um, there, are, there are some definite structural differences. First of all, you, you don't level up in the same way that you do in the main series games. Obviously, in the main series games, you battle and battle and battle, and you, your stats improve, you learn new moves and stuff like that. In this one, you know, every battle you win, and a few other ways, you uh, acquire new cards, well, that uh, you know seems sort of similar. I find that in the early portion of the game, especially if it's your first time through, you're going to be playing quite a bit to acquire cards to make your your deck better, and then eventually you want to build you know at least one or two other decks so you can swap around. Uh, and was that a point of difficulty? Did it make the first part of the game fairly slow? Uh, how did that all work out? 
Um, I mean, yes, but again, it was more just I needed to battle so I could figure out the game mechanics. It was less about my deck and being able to level up. The layout of the Game Boy like made it hard for me to visualize basically the the field. Um, so I, I struggled a lot and it was kind of like as the game progressed and I got a little better at realizing cause and effect <laughs> that it, and, and how to visualize it in my mind that it got a little easier and it got a little funner. Like, I'm sorry, I was really bad at this game. <laughs> it's just, there was a lot of fail. Well, I, I remember when I did my, my full playthrough about uh, nine or 10 or 11 years ago, I... Uh, did have to off-screen uh, play for a while to sort of get up to what I deemed an acceptable level of cards to, to keep making progress. It is kind of, you know, interesting that, you know, obviously when you start a new game of this, you're starting with a, an empty collection of cards. You get basically a theme deck, and then you sort of work your way around. You try to use uh, weaknesses uh, to your advantage and stuff like that. So, like, if you pick the, the Squirtle and Friends deck, you're probably going to go to the Fire Club first and and so on and so forth collect the the bonuses and the promo cards and things yeah yeah there are a lot of little side things you can do uh not only does ronald challenge you a couple times throughout the game but there are also these challenge cups where you have to play three games in a row and whatnot and to get promo cards and uh and things like that what about me mechanically you talked a little bit about it but like like what kind of deck did you wind up building when you played through this game for this uh for this discussion um, I started with uh, Squirtle and Friends and kind of just built off of that. Um, like I didn't really have a, a good strategy. I was kind of just, um, I, I never had enough energy cards. I should have got more. The little kid, the little kid in one of the club rooms kept telling me to do that, but I didn't. And But I kind of just was, you know, very lazy five-year-old style playing. I just wanted all the strongest monsters. And every time I got a stronger one, I put it in there. It was not very balanced. I did pretty good at the fire club and not very good anywhere else. <laughs> um, but for me, the the fun of the game was less in the winning and more in the um, trying to get all the different Pokemon and see what the little graphics were like. Um, I remember I really liked Jinx, like because I think this is one of the first times that they released art for Jinx where it was the purple skin rather than the straight black, right? Well, I think in the original, at least the original cartridge version, I think actually it does have black skin. However, oh, okay. like some other virtual console games, and I don't know if they released an interim thing in between like they did with some other stuff. I don't know if they up, the, in, the, in the virtual console version, they do update the palette used for that card so that Jinx's skin is purple. It's honestly not, not the prettiest thing ever or anything like that, but it works. Mm. But uh, I, th I think my experience was somewhat different. It, you seem like you'd be better at this game. Than I mean, I don't <laughs> remember everything from when I originally played. But, you know, ha having a, a been playing the trading card game like since 2000, like the, the real cardboard version, I think I have a, a somewhat different perspective. Uh, as far as like, like the game mechanically, um, there, there were a few things that weren't even accurate, I suppose, to the real-world trading card game. The main one being that the mulligans are not... Um, you don't get it to select to have bonus cards like you, you did in the in the game back then. You could have zero, one, or two cards if you had a basic book and your opponent didn't. But that's not implemented at all for some reason in this game. Uh, I don't think the... I don't know if the Game Boy 2 one uh, added that in because it really was part of the game back then. And, uh, you know, uh, there are a number of things that have obviously changed. Like in, in this version of the game, you can play uh, very powerful trainers, uh, which were very numerous in the early part of the trading card game. That's one of my gripes with it. I mean, it's a little bit forgivable <laughs> because trading card games were, were relatively new in addition to the game being new back then. So they hadn't figured things out. Although there are some things, uh, some mistakes, I would say, that they repeated later. Like sort of the big one is in this version of the game, there there's no balancing for whether you go first or second really mm -hmm. um i think if if you're a fan of the original generation of the trading game it may be better to actually play the game this way because you won't feel so bad about demolishing uh if you know, really know what you're doing sorry Anne. um <laughs> no, it's fine. Uh, the the <laughs> cpu opponents in this game and and whatnot so that was some of the thoughts i had there 
one kind of interesting thing they did with this is that there are a number of cards that are basically exclusive to this game. Like they don't, ex they never existed in real life or stuff like that. Uh, usually, what they are is there's stuff that does uh, kinds of randomization you can't really do in real life, um, or at least in a real life card game, very easily. So uh, they had to take out a couple cards. They had to take out the electrode from the base set and the fossil ditto just because they determined that those were just too difficult to program uh, fossil ditto in particular was just not a well-designed card because they tried to emulate the game too much without really compensating for the fact that you know regular people would have to sort of work their way through all of that um, and as a result it had like a zillion rulings and getting it right would have been really tough uh, notably, there are a bunch of, uh, like, special Game Boy versions of cards, some of which were, were converted into regular cards, like uh, this game came with that Meowth card you start the game with, with, which has Cat Punch. If you bought the strategy guide for this game, it came with the, uh, actually a secret card you could only get from the infrared feature on the Game Boy, and as a result, you can't actually get it on the uh, Virtual Console version uh, of Venusaur. And th things of that nature. And there were even some cards in the game that hadn't yet come out in North America and wouldn't for a little while. But those are those are kind of some neat touches that they did put in there. Um, what do you think about the way they, they took the art and sort of converted it into sprite work? Uh, what, what do you think about that? Um, I mean, obviously, the art on the cards um, physically is so amazing. So... Like, I think I have to acknowledge, like, it's not as pretty, but there is something about it that, like, feels very early Zelda and really early, like, Super Nintendo, Final Fantasy, and Mario about um, the art of the whole game, really, but, like, the Pokemon cards as well. And it's knowing the, the level of graphics that we have, I think they could do something more interesting nowadays, but for the technology they had at the time, like there's something very charming and nostalgic about it to me now. So I, I think as far as like, you know, the necessary evil of not being able to show these beautiful watercolors and, you know, print blocks and all the other art techniques people were doing, um, it, it worked out well. Yeah, had this uh, game had a Game Boy Advance sequel, they would have had access to a, a much wider color palette, at least in terms of the number of on-screen colors. The The Game Boy Color sequel does make a little bit better use of color and has a few more tricks up its sleeve, but if they had gotten to the Game Boy Advance, to be honest, they probably would have digitized them much more directly, probably would have um, just been able to kind of do it that way, maybe with a little bit of tweaking for the... Game Boy Advance non-backlit screen and whatnot, uh, had they decided to keep going with this. I think it was probably just getting difficult to implement that many cards. But yeah, I think they did a pretty good job here with, with the art and, and whatnot in here. Uh, some of the best-looking cards from this game, mm -hmm. as far as like classic TCG cards, I, I do want to kind of point out some of the Pokemon featured in here, actually. I mean, the, a lot of the, the starters have some good art and whatnot. Uh, like all the um, like the trainer cards, if they're not the the people cards, so if they're not like Professor Oak or Gambler or stuff like that, uh, or Mr. Fuji, uh, they're generally like all CG uh, on the original cards, and they had to transfer that over uh, to to the Game Boy Color thing. So they look a little bit different than some of like the the hand drawn Pokemon. Um, mm. You had mentioned Imakuni drew some stuff. I think one of the cards he did back in the day was the original Porygon. Oh, yeah. um, which is a hand drawing designed to look like CG. Uh, so it, it's not only is the the work that they did uh, must have done to move the things over to uh, Game Boy uh, sprite work, uh, but a lot of the art here in these original sets is actually uh, reasonably interesting. And uh, I guess something you could take a look at there. I do did want to point out, you know, this this game came out in between, in the U.S. at least, uh, between the first and second movies. Um, and as a result, it has the promos from Pokemon, the first movie, but it also, uh, the, let's see, what is it called? The Grandmasters all have legendary birds, which I have to feel that they're both like the ones from the original sets, but also the, the Game Boy special randomization stuff. And given this is in between those two movies, I have to think that maybe it was a nice coincidence, but um, 
them being able to do that sort of did build up maybe a little bit of hype for for two for the second Pokemon movie uh, that this would have fit in between I, I guess both both in Japan and in the U.S. Not so oh. much in uh, in in Europe when that was released at the end of two thousand. So I guess that that may have just been nice timing, but I, I think it is still kind of a nice touch. And I should also point out the legendary birds here. I think some of them were made into cards at the time, although I think those were Japanese exclusive. Back in Generation 4 of the trading card game, Majestic Dawn, they went back and uh, sort of brought those back and made new Pokemon based uh, of those birds that had abilities that were very similar to what you saw in there. And I actually made a deck based on that, uh, which was kind of funny. Uh, Not the greatest deck ever, but still very interesting and, and a lot of fun to play. Cool. So I think my overall verdict on the on the game is that yes, it's it's got some kind of rough edges, especially in the first little bit uh, where you're building up a card collection. But it's still a lot of fun and a lot of nice touches. And I, mm. I like I said, the sprite art is just really cool in there. Um, any other thoughts on your end on the game, man? Um, I think it's kind of one of those games where. It really depends. Your level of enjoyment probably depends on an individual basis. I think for me, the playing the card game in real life with a person or even the online card game that we have now is more enjoyable. But at the same time, I can see for other people like this this Game Boy cartridge version being the one that really captures kind of their 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 imagination or their addiction whatever um but is is the one that kind of gets them into the pokemon trading card game and and as it did for you if this game had not come out you probably wouldn't have as much to do with the trading card game or at least not as early so i i think it's kind of one of those things that everybody's going to have a different experience with it seems like a a fair assessment uh like i said the the early trading card game does definitely have its flaws and i think that's um Something that this has to be kind of lived with. If you if you go back there, the, right. <laughs> the Pokemon today have much more HP and can do much more damage. Uh, but some of the trainers there are are really brutal. I think maybe the worst one is Energy Removal, uh, followed by Gust of Wind. Which, uh, and like I said, this is in an era where there are no supporter cards, so you can't. Um, so you can just chain a huge number of trainers during your turn. So you have a lot of flexibility mm. there. All right. Well, we have a question in the chat wondering if you have any favorite cards uh, from the TCG. And and I, I am actually curious, since you are better at this game than I am, like, do you have a particular strategy that works for you in this era of the game? Um, You know, I've built in this game decks that that match up well as far as favorite cards from this game honestly there are some of the the neater ones i think in in the regular games i think i did uh you know movie promo mewtwo is is a pretty neat card it was i'm pretty sure released to sort of disrupt the metagame when it originally came out you know in japan and then in the united states to sort of shake things up with the uh, with uh you know sort of as countered hitmanchan etc uh <laughs> and it, that was in the main haymaker deck uh that was very popular in the early days of the trading card Heard game about that one yeah <laughs> um the uh, the art on the actual movie promo version maybe not the most interesting compared to say something like the oh the uh the dragonite uh, which has the the is, is the flying dragonite with the little package uh, yeah. or the envelope from that from that movie? I think you had mentioned in chat that you really like the Lapras, which has mm. I, I agree pretty good art. Um, I think a lot of the the cards in the early games uh, or in the early part of the trading game are just a standard art with like a little halo of color around it over a background. Uh, the Ken Sugimori reference art that they use, but a number yeah. of them do have um, defined stuff. Like I think in uh, and there are some interesting little details, some of which you can't really see in the trading card game for Game Boy. Like, uh, like the ghastly. I think the base ghastly has. There's some graffiti in the background on the wall there, um, and they and they do stuff like that to try to make things uh, fairly interesting, uh, at least on on some of them. So there are fun little details like that. Uh, nowadays, you know, everything. I mean, there's still hand drawn stuff. 
But it's all done on computer, of course, whereas back then I think they had to have an actual canvas and stuff and then scan it in is how that one worked. To be honest, uh, the first couple sets, I'm not sure I have a huge opinion on some of the card art. Some of it is quite nice. There's always, uh, I mean, the Charmander starter card always stands out to me in part just because its tail accidentally sets like some some stuff on fire and it's looking back at it and it's like, oh no, uh, <laughs> sorry I did that. <laughs> and things like that. So they haven't gotten as creative as they are sometimes these days in there. But um, yeah, so that, those are kind of my, my thoughts with all of that. Would you be interested in uh, an update for the Nintendo Switch? We got a comment um, from Kiru Godzilla one about uh, making a Pokemon Team Rocket edition for Nintendo Switch. To me, that sounds a lot of fun. <laughs> I think about as close as they want you to get to that is probably something like the uh, sort of the, the GameCube games uh, where you get to capture from the evil team some of the, mm. the shadow Pokemon they've gotten. And I've also kind of brought that back for Pokemon Go. Uh, in a slightly different form, so. But what if we want to be maybe evil? something like that? I, you know, <laughs> I know play as the bad guy is is a common theme. I mean, I remember you know Wario was originally a an antagonist in in Mario Land two, and then you know a few years later you got to actually play as him in his own series of games uh, that went on, and, and eventually you know they got the WarioWare and stuff like that. I I really cannot see though a Team Rocket game where you play as Team Rocket, it might sound kind of fun, but I don't think it's something that the Pokemon company really wants to produce. There are some costumes and stuff, but I don't think it's something we'll be seeing anytime soon. Well, darn. <laughs> so sorry, friend, your dream. 